Let's pray again. Lord, we pray as we come into this special time where we hear from your word that by your spirit you'll open our heart and our minds to receive your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, please take your Bible again and turn to Matthew 22. If you're not still there, Matthew 22. I mentioned on Wednesday night at our gathering that I don't typically follow the calendar for what I preach on in regard to certain days. For instance, I don't often do Father's Day sermons or Mother's Day sermons, uh, things like that. Uh, Of course, we do certain themes like Easter and Christmas, things that are on the church calendar where we can really take a maybe a bulk of time and really focus on the coming of Christ. Obviously, a huge part of the gospel and, of course, what he did in his death and resurrection as well. So mainly we follow the, the church calendar, as it were, but oftentimes we don't follow uh, the, the regular calendar throughout various months. But there are times where God works it out, where we come to a certain theme within Scripture that matches something that's going on that particular week. And what we're looking at this morning coincides well with our recent election and the subject of Christianity in politics. If you're anything like me, you're happy that this election is over. This has been a a very divisive election cycle. The ads on TV have not only been ample, but they've been consistently negative, vehemently negative even, on both sides. Not only really even on the national level, but if you watched all those local commercials with the various Congress people, of course, negative as well. But now that all of that is said and done, Now that all of the ads have been paid for and watched, now that 18-month campaigns are over, it's clear that on January 20th, 2017, Donald Trump will be inducted as the 45th President of the United States. And to some of you, that is exciting. To others of you, those words may be horrifying. To others of you, you might be cautiously optimistic, and to others, you might be a little more on the pessimistic side. But do you realize that as a Christian, regardless of your feeling on the election, who has been elected, your responsibility as a believer has not changed one iota. As Christians living in the city of man, living in a nation where there are man-made laws to live by, there's really an interesting tension that we rest in as Christians. Well, on the one side, we are members of an earthly country, but then on the other side, we're members of a heavenly country. And Christians throughout the centuries have thought long and hard on how exactly we should live within the city of man as those who are members of a heavenly kingdom. Even when you think of other religious groups, you think of uh, maybe... Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, who there's 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the United States and none of them vote. So they've come to a conclusion. They've said, you know what, this is what we believe, this is what we think about X, Y, and Z, so therefore we're not going to vote. Or you have other large groups like the Old Order Amish, 300,000 Old Order Amish within the United States and none of them vote. So you have over 8 million people just because of their religion, because of what they think on various things, they don't vote at all. But as Christians, followers of Christ, living in America, we have long thought it important to be involved in the political process because it is something that we have been given. It has been a right that we have been handed by our, for, by our founding fathers. 
So we've long thought it important to be involved, to use our power as the people of this nation to get out and to vote and maybe even be involved in politics ourselves. We've long thought it important to vote our conscience and to elect a person who would stand for even the key commitments that we have as Christians, like the sanctity of human life, like freedom of worship, like the sanctity of marriage, and so on. But how are Christians to function as citizens of both an earthly kingdom and a heavenly kingdom? Does the Bible have much to say on this subject? And I hope this morning that we, see, we will see that that is the case. I think the teaching of Jesus here that we're going to be looking at this morning helps us to build a good foundation for how we're to rest in that tension of living between two worlds. As those who really don't belong here, we know we belong to a heavenly country, and so we we rest between two worlds. Specifically in our text this morning, Jesus says to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But before we even get there, let's look at verse 15 again. To see where this teaching comes from. What leads to this great statement, this famous statement of Jesus. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. You remember last week that we saw the Pharisees, that they had denied Jesus as their Messiah, that the kingdom of God had been taken away from them, and then third, that they were going to suffer the punishment for refusing the kingdom of God. They were going to reap the repercussion for denying Jesus as their Messiah. And so the Pharisees are coming to him. They're they're thinking, how how can we trap Jesus? How can we get this guy to slip up? Everything they had thrown at him so far had not done anything to him. And so they want to trap him. They want to catch him off guard. They want to slip him up in some sort of way. And the way they go about this really is masterful. That as you look at these verses, it's really intriguing how they come up with the question they ask. So uh, they plotted and figured out a way that they think that they can entangle Jesus. And so what they do is they take some of their disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees, and they bring them together with a group called the Herodians. And this is really important, so don't don't miss this. So the disciples of the Pharisees were representatives of God and God's law, and the Herodians, you remember people like King Herod, so Herodians would have been representatives or adherents to Caesar and his law. And so these two groups of people, those who emphasize God's law and those who emphasize Caesar's law, of course they do not get along. Yet, we clearly see in this text that these two groups of people come together, although they hate each other, they come together in a bipartisan way in order to attack their common enemy. And so their intent with the question that they ask him is to get him to say something that they could use to arrest him. If they could get him to sound like he is against Rome that he's some sort of revolutionary and wants to overthrow Rome, then maybe they could get him arrested for being uh, that kind of a revolutionary. But if they could get him to sound like he is siding with Rome, then the crowds and the people would turn against him because most everybody hated Rome. But look further at verse 16. Look how the conversation begins. And the Pharisees sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You guys know, we've gone through 22 chapters of this book. You know that the Pharisees are sneaky. You know what they're saying there is absolute schmoozing on their part, right? They come to him. We know that you're a good teacher. We know that you speak the truth. No, Jesus sniffs out their malice 
pretty quickly. Jesus, of course, knows that they do not truly believe that. But you can see how sneaky they are. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they've taken counsel together. They think they have the question that they can put Jesus in a box and get him nailed to the cross or get him at least in prison. The way they come to him is totally trying to butter him up. And so the question they present to him is a question that really mixes religion and politics. Dangerous questions, right? Never fun questions to really handle. Basically, what they're saying is this. Is it lawful as Jews to pay taxes to a Roman Caesar, or should we refrain from doing that? If he answers yes, it will sound like he's pro-Rome, and the Jews will hate him. If he says no, it will sound like he's anti-Rome, and the rulers and the others will hate him. Yet Jesus is totally undaunted with their question. He immediately asks for a coin for the tax. He asks for a denarius, and we've looked at this coin before, uh, where a denarius is a day's wage. It was one coin. Now, I've asked somebody if I could borrow their quarter, and so I have a quarter with me. I didn't have a 2,000-year-old denarius on hand, so I asked to borrow a quarter. I want you to pretend that instead of George Washington's profile on this quarter, that it's Barack Obama's profile, or maybe it's President-elect Donald Trump's profile. And as we look at this quarter, we see Obama's profile on it, but under it, we see Barack Obama, son of the divine. And then we flip over the quarter, and we see that it has a Roman goddess pictured on it, and the words, highest priest. Generally speaking, how would you even feel about this coin if that's what you had to look at every day? At minimum, it's blasphemy. We, we would despise that coin. But that's exactly what the people of this day had to look at. On one side of their coin, it would have had the profile of the Caesar, Tiberius, who was over the Roman Empire. It would have said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And on the other side, it would have said, highest priest. And so every time you would look at that coin, it would not only be a reminder of who was ruling over you, but you would see the blasphemy that was even on your own currency that the Caesar's father was somehow divine and the highest priest, and that he himself was the highest priest. Just like if our coin said that, we would be outrageously offended at even our currency. But who in this situation would have the right to be most offended? Well, of course, Jesus himself. Because who is actually the Son of God? Jesus, who himself is the great high priest. Well, Jesus was. And so they bring him the coin. Jesus asks them, whose image is on the coin? And he says in response to their question about Jews paying taxes to Rome, probably one of his most famous one-liners, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And this is an astounding answer. That you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and you give to God what belongs to him. So Jesus doesn't fall for their trap by any means at all. Instead, he masterfully answers the question without hesitation. So it's not a yes or no question for Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? I'm not going to say yes or no to that. You just give to Caesar what belongs to him, and then you give God what belongs to God. And so within his answer, he not only renders to God and, and, and puts God in his rightful place as deserving all that's due to him, but he also puts Caesar in his rightful place. 
And he honors the government that is in place. He's giving consent here to government, to a civil system in place over them. He's giving honor to it. He's not telling them to bash it down. He's honoring what has been put in place. That they, the Romans, have a rightful rule that is to be honored. And so Jesus, in his answer, brings no dishonor to God. And he brings no dishonor to Caesar. But he recognizes instead that the state or rule of law has a place in society. He didn't say Caesar was wonderful or his favorite thing. He doesn't say that he hates Caesar. He simply acknowledges that Caesar is the ruler. Therefore, render to Caesar what belongs to him. And so Jesus takes that coin. He says, whose image is on this coin? Caesar's. So render what belongs to him. And by way of application, in regard to rendering to God the things that are God's, where can God's image be found? If Caesar's image is found on the coin, where can God's image be found? In us. In you and in me. So God created man and woman in his own image. And as image bearers, we have the responsibility to honor and to render to God all that belongs to God. To to render to, to the one in whose image we have been made everything that he deserves. We are to do and to be all that God requires, rendering him everything that he wants, namely all of our worship and all of our praise. Like the famous verse in Romans 12 says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that this is your spiritual worship. So obviously, there's two sides to Jesus' answer. There's a fundamental responsibility for image bearers to render all that is due to the one in whose image they have made made. But then on the other side of it, you and I have a responsibility to render to Caesar or to your government what is required of you so long as you are not being required to cross any line that God has drawn within his word. And so you should pay your taxes, rendering what is required of you. You should not cheat on them. You should obey the law of the land. As much as I hate to admit it, and I'm a terrible example of it, you should follow the speed limit. You shouldn't roll through stoplights. You shouldn't burn through traffic lights. I had a roommate in college who was very earnest when it came to obeying traffic laws. We went to a small school in the northeast portion of Wisconsin, and it was just Podunkville. There were little towns scattered all over, but just barren wasteland in between. And those... Those towns, I think they had like a 25, 30 mile an hour speed limit going through them. So we just putt through those towns everywhere we went together. He was very earnest about obeying the law of the land, but he was right to do that. We are to be obedient. We're to be good citizens on the earth. Frankly, we're to be the best citizens. We should be model citizens of this country. Obedient to the laws that have been set before us so long as they do not contradict the law of God. But I want you to see a few places to help you consider the Christian and the civil sphere a little more carefully. First, that God himself is the one who decides who is placed into leadership. There is never a leader that is put in place that God himself does not put in place. The book of Daniel says this. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So, He removes kings and he sets kings up. Who does this? God does this. You may say, well, we just had an election and we the people decided who is our president. But from our perspective, that might be true. But from God's perspective, he is the one who will remove the power from Obama and give the power to Donald Trump. 
And the same goes for every nation. That whoever is raised up, whether good or bad or indifferent, whoever gets raised up, whoever gets put down, that is the almighty hand of God. He is the one who is doing that. The scriptures are clear. It is God who removes kings and sets up kings. But notice as well that whatever ruler God decides to put in place over whatever nation is certainly not authoritative over God, but that God, as the one who sets that person up, is authoritative over that ruler. The book of Proverbs tells us this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, that he turns it wherever he wills. So not only does God decide who is the ruler and who is not, but the hearts of all rulers are in the hand of the Lord. I mean, you scan the pages of the Bible and you see that this is totally clear. The, the situations with Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Herod and Pilate, so many rulers, you see God's hand specifically ruling in that situation. That there's no kingdom of man that God does not have his hand involved with. This is incredible. Even with the rise and fall of the good, the good or wicked kings of Israel or Judah, you see God raising up Saul, you see God put Saul down. You see God raised David up, Solomon up, and all the rest. He's the one bringing them up. He's the one who is putting them down. And whatever they do, their hearts are are like streams of water in the hands of the living God. And frankly, there's a a wonderful peace and, 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 and truth about this. That whether you love Donald Trump or you cannot stand him, you can trust in God's complete control, in his power. That he's the one who raises them up and that he's the one who casts them down. So if it was Hillary, it would have been him raising her up for his own purposes and him casting her down for his own purposes. That's the way it works. And then no matter what, that their hearts are like streams in the hand of the Almighty God. This is so comforting to us as Christians that that the president uh, is not outside God's sovereignty. That, That the very seat you sit under, over the, the, the molecules holding your chair together, that God Himself is holding that chair together, and, and, and it's no different with God. That He controls the molecules in the chair that you're sitting on just as much as He controls the stroke of the president's pen. But there's a further hope to the Christian in regard to this world as well, and that we have the knowledge that we are not ultimately citizens of this earth, but that we're citizens of a heavenly country. That, that by believing and trusting in God's gospel, that we are headed for a heavenly destination and where we are going to be for eternity instead of this blip of time here on the earth. Notice these verses, Philippians 3 and verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are, we are citizens of, of heaven where we await that great citizen Christ to come, to burst forth from, and to, to save us and to remedy all of our, all, and vanquish all evil and all of the rest. So our citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews 13 says this, For we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. We can connect this with Abraham in Hebrews 11. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so we have no lasting city here. We seek a city that is to come. And it's a lasting city, a forever city, a city whose designer and builder is none other than God himself. And he's the one who rules and reigns over that city, never to put a bad policy in place or never do something wrong, but as one who rules and reigns perfectly. 
I mean, do you live in light of this? That you're not ultimately a citizen here, but of that heavenly, lasting city and place. Do you seek that place whose designer and builder is none other than God himself? The United States could crumble and burn tomorrow. God has made no promise to make America last. He has made no promise to sustain her and to keep her alive and flourishing. None. This is not a lasting city. This is not a country that is going to exist for eternity. A really well-meaning guy came up to our door one time, and he had a particular author that he really liked to read in his books and so forth, and he was telling me about how the American founding fathers and God entered into a covenantal arrangement like you see in the Bible. And he, I really think it was well-meaning. I, I don't discount that at all, but I was standing there trying not to let my jaw fall to the ground. That's so far out in left field. It's not true. There's no biblical precedent for it. America is not God's special nation that he has entered into covenant to, that he would always protect and always take care of and all of the rest. This is not a lasting city. We're a corrupt nation. Corrupt. We kill babies and we join in it. We, have, we rejoice in iniquity. We have absolutely no moral compass. We stand deserving the judgment of God. We don't stand deserving God's blessing. And it's important that as Christians, that we, we model ourselves after the, the prophets and call out the injustices of our society and to call down what God calls wicked and to be willing to stand for those things that we know that God will loathe and hate We're so corrupt. It should be very clear to us that we do not belong to God in covenant as an earthly nation, but we belong to God as the church, which is the holy nation. And God has entered into covenant with His church in what we know as the new covenant. That is the covenant by which God is currently working. You scan the entire Bible. That is the way that God interacts with people. God does not interact with you in a loving and gracious way, usually, unless He is in covenant with you or seeking, you to, seeking to bring you into covenant with Himself. And it's the same today. God interacts with His church because He has decided to make a covenantal agreement with His church, and He will obey His own terms of that covenantal agreement. But He has done that with the church, with the new covenant. He has not done that with our nation. And you may say, but we were founded on Christian principles. Our money says... Not son of the divine Tiberius. It says, in God we trust. Our Pledge of Allegiance says, one nation under God. The Declaration of Independence mentions our Creator. We sing songs, God shed His grace on thee. And all of this is, is true. It's wonderful. It's very clear that our founding fathers were at least cognizant of the Word of God. And although several were deists and worse, others were born-again believers. But this certainly doesn't mean that God has entered into some kind of relationship with America that he has promised that she would never fail because America could really fail and it would not be on God's it would not be God's problem fault. You see throughout history the greatest empires have risen and fallen. You think of even the Roman Empire over this area. They rose to great amounts, had a massive empire and then what happened? They had a huge collapse. You think of the great kingdom of, of, of even Britain 
I mean, that little island that's the size of Michigan like, had rule over almost the entire world, it seemed. And then what happened? Well, they collapse. That the greatest empires have risen and they have fallen. They all do. And what needs to be clear to us is that although we love our country, and I hope you're not getting any sense at all that Brandon hates America. That's just, that's not true. Although we love our country, and we're thankful to be a part of this country, and we're thankful to have the heritage that it has, that it is not a lasting city. This is not where our hope and our final hope can be found. I hope that your trust isn't in former presidents, or this president, or coming presidents. I hope that your hope and your trust is not, as the Bible talks about, in chariots um, or anything else, but that your hope is in God alone, knowing that your citizenship is in a lasting place, a place that will never fall or fail. These are the two great hopes of the Christian, that God is sovereign and in control of who is raised up to be the ruler, and he controls what they do. And we are not ultimately members of an earthly country, but a heavenly country. And so our hope is not on this earth. Our hope is in Christ, who is our king and who is eternal, and who throughout the whole book of Matthew, we have talked about his kingdom, his kingdom, his kingdom, the authority of Christ over everything. That's where our hope is. That's where we rest. But let's bring the rubber down to the road a little further. Look at these verses from Romans Chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So the church of Jesus Christ is to be subject to the governing authorities that are in place over us. Currently within our state, Governor LePage. Currently in our country, President Obama. In verse 2, he says that whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Again, going back to that God is the one who raises up the authorities, the kings that are over us, and he's the one who puts them down. And if you do resist what God has placed over you, look there in verse 2. You will incur judgment upon yourself for your resistance. And so we remain in subjection to God's leaders that he places over us, not only to avoid God's wrath and judgment, but also for the sake of our own consciences, it goes on to say. Peter sounds awfully close to this when he writes as well. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So we're to be subject to every human institution, whether emperor or governor or king or president, it doesn't matter. And whose sake do we do this for? It says there, we do it for the Lord's sake. And so we live in in subject to the authorities for the sake of Jesus. But there is a line. And even pastorally, I think I can tell you that, that if the governing authorities ever command you to do that which would be unbiblical then you ought not to do it. If the government ever put in place some sort of limit to the amount of children that you have and you get pregnant and the government wanted to force abortions in some sort of Chinese way, you ought not to do that. If euthanasia ever becomes some sort of mandate in certain cases or for certain ages, you ought not allow for that. If the government tries to step in and censor the preaching and teaching of God's word and tells us to not forbid what God forbids, then we're not going to listen to that. 
I mean, do, do you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Those are fun names to say. But you remember that King Nebuchadnezzar built a large golden statue to himself. And at the sound of all of the instruments, all the people were to bow down to the great statue that he had erected. And anyone who did not bow down to that, of course, got thrown into the fiery furnace. And so all the music plays, the hundreds bow before the statue, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to worship that image. They refuse to worship a false god. They refuse to do that. Instead, they express their allegiance to God alone, and the same should be for us. That if we were ever commanded to worship anything other than God, that we should refuse it at all costs. He has expressly said to not worship images, to not allow for other gods. I think we have a New Testament example as well in Acts chapter 5 when you have the uh, apostles who are standing before the religious rulers and they make a beautiful, clear, succinct line. They say, we must obey God rather than men. And there may come times where that happens. Where yes, you, you subject yourself to the rulers of the nation as much as you can. But if they ever place a law that would place you in opposition to God's law, you ought not to do that thing, anything the governing powers command of you that is unbiblical, it would be sinful for you to ever do that thing. So you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, so long as what you're rendering to Caesar is not contrary to what you need to render unto God. But finally, how are we to live then beyond all of this? We understand that God is sovereign over who gets elected. We understand that the king's heart is in his hands. We understand that we are not citizens ultimately of this country. We're citizens of a heavenly country. But one of the most important and most neglected things that we can do and must do is to honor our leaders and to pray for them. And this isn't always easy. But Peter says this in 2 Peter 2.17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Second Peter was written likely in the mid-60s, the A.D. 60s, the first century. And do you know who was the emperor until later that decade? Nero. And the Roman emperor, who he, he killed, this Roman emperor Nero killed his stepbrother. He killed his mother. He killed his first wife. In regard to Christians, people believe that he's the one who set the great uh, uh, Roman fire. He, they think that he's the one who did that and then blamed the Christians. But we do know that he would take Christians, he would set them on fire, and he would use them to light his palace area. Honor that emperor. Can you imagine as the people are reading that? He's taking Christians and lighting up his palace with them. Honor the emperor. Paul says this. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all the people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so regardless of who is in office, the responsibility on our end as Christians remains the same. We're to honor them. We're to pray for them. And then we are to, as much as we are able, to live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. This is how people who have the gospel live. That they're able to live in any society, under any administration or form of government, because the gospel is not bound to any of those things. 
The gospel empowers us to be able to pray for our rulers of our lands. It empowers us to even honor those who who present things that may horrify us. Friends, Christianity is able to flourish in every country. Have you noticed that? There's nothing that can hold back God's gospel. That our Christianity is not dependent on any government under which we find ourselves. The kingdom of God does not rise and fall with presidents. The kingdom of God cannot be hindered by a bad policy. Think of all of the different governments that the gospel has had success under. Monarchies, dictatorships, republics, everything. Countries that outlaw the gospel. The gospel thrives in that place. Jesus Christ is building his church. And the very gates of hell cannot prevent its growth. And if that is true, then we can be confident that earthly kingdoms cannot prevent its growth. The author of Hebrews says that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Listen to this quotation from Carl Henry. The early church didn't say, look what the world is coming to. They said, look what has come into the world. This is the kind of resolve that we need to have. That we can be sure as as sin runs rampant in our world, that it can be easy to look around and say, man, what is this world coming to? You watch the news and just the destruction that's happening, not only in our country, but all over the world. And it's so easy to be like, what in the world is happening? But the early church and the apostles, they lived and preached, look what has come into the world. That Jesus Christ has come. That he's done an incredible work in his atonement on the cross and in his resurrection. And he's coming again someday to rule and to reign with his people. Look what has come into the world. And keep looking for who is coming back to the world. What a hope we have as Christians. That God is sovereign over who rises and falls as our leader. He's sovereign over what they do. He has given us a citizenship in heaven. He's told us to honor our leaders. He's told us to pray for our leaders, to render to them what is due to them. And through this, we are not only able to live in a way that is dignified and respectful of our country, but in a way that glorifies God, which is of ultimate importance to us. Thank you, Father, for our country. We're thankful for the heritage. We're thankful for those who have ruled in our country who who have loved you. We're thankful that there are things remaining that we can even look to that that remind us of certain truths. And God, we trust. We we trust in you. God, I I pray for our nation and I, I pray that we could even say things like we do in our pledge, that we are a nation under God. But God, we... We are not naive, and we see what is going on and how sin is rampant, but we do not look at that and think that to be penultimate. But what we see is you and your gospel. We consider, as Carl Henry has said, that we look at what has come into the world. That is where our great hope is. Our hope is not here. Our hope is in the everlasting city where saints throughout the ages beginning with Abraham even, looked for a city whose builder and maker was God, and we look for that same city. God, I pray that you will help us to honor our current rulers. We pray for them. We pray for our coming president, our coming congressman, 
those in the House and in the Senate. There's so many decisions that need to be made. There's such a divide within our nation. But look at what has come into the world. And we pray that the gospel will go forward and heal our land and heal our people. We pray this in Christ's name, who is the King. Amen.